Welcome to episode 21 of the Crisis in the Church series. We're going to wrap up our discussion on the course of the Second Vatican Council today with Father McGilvery by looking at the fourth and final session of the Council, which took place in 1965. To do this, we'll hone in on four of the most important constitutions that were passed, dealing with religious liberty, divine revelation, ecumenism, and more. These documents mark a definitive shift in how the Catholic Church considered these important issues and makes 1965 perhaps the most momentous year in the recent history of the Catholic Church. If you've seen last episode, you'll be well equipped to identify the ambiguity and the time bombs in these documents that would shape the way the Catholic Church looks today. If you'd like to learn more about the series we're doing on the crisis in the church, or go back and revisit our previous 20 episodes, or if you want to support this project, please visit sspxpodcast.com slash crisis. Now we'll turn to our conversation with Father McGilvery. Welcome back to the Crisis in the Church series here on the SSPX podcast and welcoming Father McGilvery for our final session on the course of the council. Uh, And last episode, Father, we were talking about the second session and the third session and the periods in between. uh, And we started to dive into a couple of the big schemas that came out. And now we dive into the fourth session, the fourth and the final session, which took place in 1965. Is that correct? That is right, yes. Okay. And so we're going to look at a number of schemas that were produced in this final session. There were, in fact, 11 schemas in total, um, but there are four in particular which are going to take up our attention. They are Nostra Aetate, uh, which is the declaration on the relation of the church with non-Christian religions, um, as opposed to we looked at Unitatis Redintegratio in the third session, and that was the relation of the, the Catholic Church to Protestant or, or Orthodox sects, whereas now Nostra Aetate is looking at the relation of the church to non-Christian religions. Then there's Dei Verbum, which is the constitution on divine revelation. Um, Also, Dignitatis Humanae, which uh, is a declaration on religious liberty. And finally, Gaudium et Space, which is a pastoral uh, constitution on the church in the modern world. Okay. So let's start with Nostra Aetate. That was the first one of the four that we're going to be talking about that, that came out of the council. Um, and this is, again, distinct because it's talking about the relation of the church with non-Christian religions, other, other religions, uh, Muslims, Jews, etc. What do the Council Fathers say on this topic, Father? Well, they are trying to um, make the church, let's say, acceptable to the modern world by um, pointing out whatever good values may be found in other religions. It's part of this idea of, well, if only we would be nicer and more friendly towards uh, other people who aren't Catholics, then maybe they would be more open to our message. And so with this kind of motivation, um, the, the council fathers are coming up with basically anything positive that they can say about non-Christian uh, religions in order to better this relationship uh, between the church and the world. So there's really an almost at times ridiculous attempt to find things that are praiseworthy in non-Catholic or non-Christian religions. Um, for example, speaking of Hinduism, the document says, in Hinduism, men contemplate the divine mystery and express it through an unspent fruitfulness of myths. Uh, so we're basically passing in review of all the world religions and then saying whatever good things we can about them, even if it's not really quite true. Like, do Hindus really contemplate the divine mystery? No, they have a completely false idea of, of God if they even acknowledge any kind of a personal God, which, which really Hinduism doesn't. So 
that's really the one of the unfortunate things of this document is that it's it's basically um, stretching the truth immensely in order to find positive things to say about uh, non-Christian religions. The thing that strikes me, Father, is that it seems like they're trying to find kernels of truth or goodness or salvation, both a, both on a, a kind of a temporal sense and a, and a spiritual sense in these other religions when it seems to me that the Catholic Church has all of these truths in spades and all of these examples in spades. So why not just focus on the Catholic faith? Well, exactly. I think the problem is that in the minds of liberal theologians, uh, the church is too, let's say, proud of herself and her own spiritual treasures. The the liberal theologians tend to condemn um, an attitude which they brand as triumphalism, the idea that, uh, you know, the Catholic Church is basically uh, the greatest thing that exists and everyone else just needs to acknowledge her superiority and enter into her. Um, now, that that's not actually pride because uh, the truth is that our Lord Jesus Christ only founded one religion, which is the, the Catholic one, and that it's the Catholic Church alone which is the divinely appointed means of salvation. All this is true. However, uh, unfortunately, the liberal mindset tends to misunderstand this as a kind of uh, spiritual pride, perhaps, and so thinks that it's necessary to uh, for the Church to humble herself in, in front of the world and, and acknowledge all these good values which supposedly are to be found outside of her. Right. That's interesting. And it seems to be that they're giving into pressure during this time more than they have in, in, in other times. In other times, the church was For able sure. to stand up and say, no, this is the truth. This is this is what we believe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Take it or leave mm-hmm. it. Uh, whereas in, you know, the 1960s with the Vatican, Second Vatican Council, they're, you know, giving a little bit more, I, I guess, more human respect. I don't know if that's the right term or not, but. I think so. There's definitely a lot of human respect and a lot of desire to please the world, to appear good. Uh, we can see that the, the media certainly exercised an enormous amount of pressure on the Second Vatican Council. And certainly there was in the, the mind of the Council Fathers this question of how will the world at large perceive the things that we're about to say. Yeah. And we can say that these documents of the Second Vatican Council, part of, uh, let's say, the, the fact that they were written as pastoral documents means that they're also written um, in the tone of almost a communique of the, the church to the world. The church is trying to kind of give a press release about herself and, and redefine her relations with, with the rest of the world. So it's not so much the, the church focusing on her own life and trying to strengthen it and, and uh, uproot heresies, uh, like has done, been done in previous ecumenical councils, but it's rather the church looking at herself in the world and trying to improve her diplomatic relations with, with the outside world. Yeah. Just one, one thing to point out also about this uh, document, Nostra Aetate, just an interesting biographical note on the, the author of the document. His name at the moment escapes me, but um, I do remember reading in, in Taylor Marshall's book, Infiltration, that the author of this document, um, a, a Catholic priest, he later left the priesthood uh, to marry and also lived an openly homosexual life. Um, and towards the end of his life was was very active in, in promoting the LGBTQ movement. So this kind of gives you an idea of the inspiration of the document. It was written written by a priest who eventually was to leave the church in order to become very much a part of the world. So we can already see this kind of undervaluing of, of the Catholic Church and, and overestimation of, of the positive values outside of her. Um, it's in the mind of this author who, who made the document. Oh. Well, that, that tells you a little bit something there. 
for sure. So that was uh, Nostra Aetate was done at the end of October of 1965, and then we get into November. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the next one that you wanted to look at, Father, is Dei Verbum. What is That's Dei right. Verbum about? Sure. So this is the Constitution on Divine Revelation. And we can note, first of all, that let's say there was another document or schema proposed by the liberals, which was much worse than the one which was eventually published, Dei Verbum. There was another one which was blocked at the mo- last moment, fortunately. Nevertheless, Dei Verbum, this this uh, constitution on divine revelation, it does have some problems. Uh, there was a lot of debate at the time as to... Um, how to explain the sources of revelation. And the church's traditional teaching is that there are two sources of divine revelation, scripture and tradition. The modernists like to downplay tradition or, if possible, get rid of it altogether and focus on scripture alone, thus aligning themselves much more closely with the Protestants. With this constitution, Dei Verbum, um, the two sources of revelation are indeed acknowledged, but there is definitely more emphasis given to sacred scripture. So a little bit of a modernist or liberal leaning there. Um, The other problem with this constitution on divine revelation is that it um, introduces one of these time bombs of the council. It's the old modernist idea of vital imminence and that uh, basically our own interior religious sense is responsible for a development of of doctrine, which is not necessarily uh, in continuity with its historical antecedents. So in other words, the, the, the deposit of faith or, or Christian doctrine can change over time as uh, people's religious sense develops. Uh, there's just a hint of this in, in the text of the document. So uh, I'll quote you uh, the text here. The tradition that comes from the apostles makes progress in the church with the help of the Holy Spirit. There is a growth in insight into the realities and words that are being passed on. And this comes about in various ways. It comes about through the contemplation and study of believers who ponder these things in their hearts. It comes from the intimate sense of the spiritual realities which they experience. And it comes from the preaching of those who have received along with the right of succession in the episcopate, the sure charism of truth. Thus, as the centuries go by, the church is always advancing toward the plenitude of divine truth. So we see this idea, which already is a bit ambiguous, of advancing towards the plenitude of truth, um, but it's it's even worse the way in which it's explained that this happens. It comes from the intimate sense of the spiritual realities which believers experience. So there's this idea of religious sense and religious experience, which is somehow shaping dogma, and it's not clear whether uh, the progress of dogma will always be in the same sense as it was always understood, or whether it's possible for there to be a development of new senses which are not really in logical conformity with the old and just speaking to our, our viewers our listeners for a moment if if you want to dig more into this because this is this is important uh you mentioned at the beginning father of this section vital eminence and mm-hmm. then you're talking about you know this the church is always advancing towards the plenitude of divine truth if you want to learn more about this and you haven't already seen episodes 15 and 16 this is with father bormo we're talking about existentialism we're talking about vital eminence and how there really is no truth at the present moment. We're always advancing towards truth. This is part and parcel of that new theology. And I'm not speaking to you, Father. Uh, you know this. Uh, but this is part and parcel of that new theology that de Lubac and, and Terre de Chardin are, are advancing at the period just before the council. And now these same exact ideas are in the council and coming out in these declarations 
or am I totally connecting dots where there are no connections? Father? No, that's, that's absolutely right. Uh, thank you for, for clarifying that. Uh, and we can also say that um, because this text here is one of the council's time bombs, we're going to see, um, let's say, many uh, consequences drawn from it in the future. In fact, when um, Pope John Paul II declared Archbishop Lefebvre excommunicated in his um, Motu Proprio Ecclesia Dei Ficta um, in 1988, he accused the Archbishop of having a um, mistaken idea of, of what Catholic tradition is. And in order to back up that affirmation, he quotes this text from Dei Verbum to say that, let's say, tradition is not something frozen solid, it's living, it can grow and change, and, and new senses can come about, which didn't exist beforehand. And that's through uh, the, the contemplation and study of believers who ponder these things in their hearts. It comes from the intimate sense of the spiritual realities which they experience. <laughs> and, and so we can see here that this text uh, has provided, let's say, uh, a kind of way of legitimizing changes in doctrine. And, and this is precisely what's going to set apart Archbishop Lefebvre and, and his followers who are faithful to uh, Catholic tradition in the, in the sense in which it was defined at Vatican I versus those who are following this kind of neo-modernist idea of a living and evolving tradition. Yeah, that's fascinating. So that's Dei Verbum. Then we get into Dignitates Humanae. Uh, this is the next, yes. uh, the next one that comes out December of 1965. And this is on the Declaration of Religious Liberty. That's correct. And this document is arguably the one in which the uh, departure from the church's traditional teaching is most uh, clear and unambiguous, and which, say, the, the neoconservatives who want to justify uh, Vatican II and say that it, it contains no errors, only ambiguities, they really trip up over this document in particular. And it, it would be interesting just to go through a list of all the all the works which have been written in an attempt to justify this. Um, but each each one, let's say, successfully refutes the, the works that have gone before them, um, only confirming the, the truth that, in fact, this, this text is not compatible. Um, so the Catholic Church has always taught that Catholicism, the true religion, um, has has rights, of course, and, and the, anyone has the right to profess the true religion, and no human authority, no civil power can restrict those rights to, to true religious liberty, that is to say, the liberty to worship God as he himself has commanded. On the other hand, there's no such thing as a right to worship God. In, in a false way, according to a false religion. That's not actually worship, that's objectively something blasphemous and, and false. Um, and you can't have a right to profess error. That's that's explicitly pot, taught by uh, Pope Pius XII, for example, in, in one of his papal allocutions. Uh, the name at the moment escapes me, but he says that error as such has no rights, and there can be no rights to, to teach or profess error, objectively speaking. The problem with this document, Dignitas, it's that, is that it's absurd, uh, asserting that the human person, on account of his his natural dignity as man, he has the right to um, profess both in, in private and in public that religion which which seems good to him, uh, which he approves of, which his conscience says is good, uh, whether it be objectively right or not. And, and this right to profess even false religions is limited only by just public order, uh, whatever that may be. But it's clear that in principle man has the right to profess the religion of his choice. 
And the, the council is very explicit on that, saying that even uh, this right to immunity from coercion in matters of religion continues to exist even in those who do not live up to their obligation of seeking the truth and adhering to it. And the exercise of this right is not to be impeded, provided that just public order be observed. So, so it's something very disturbing that the council document is asserting that there can be a right, a right to profess a false religion and in fact to profess it publicly. So they're saying that this right to to profess public religion belongs to the person. It is a personal uh, right, and basically equating it to mm-hmm. a natural right, a, a something sure. uh, equal to the to the natural law that is kind of infused uh, infused in us, and then that comes from God. Instead of saying instead of saying it's toleration, mm-hmm. it's part of something mm-hmm. that I should have as a person. Exactly. So it's one thing to speak about toleration, which is where the state, uh, let's say, does not actively prosecute or go after false religions or allows them a certain limited freedom because the the ruler of the state prudently foresees that it would be impossible to uh, uproot or or get rid of those false religions or it would, uh, let's say, cause more harm than good. So there can be many motives for a, a state to legitimately tolerate false religions. However, as the popes have taught Leo the Thirteenth, for example, that this is in fact a sign of an imperfect state. The more a state uh, finds it necessary to tolerate false religions, um, that's that's an indication of of an imperfection rather than something which is desirable in and of itself. And, and, and this again, toleration doesn't grant rights to the people, personal rights for them to adhere to error. Um, rather, it's just a prudential measure on the part of the ruler. And I was just going to say, Father, and again, I'm I'm pitching our previous episodes again here. But if you want to learn more about this, Father Ruder covers it in a lot of detail when we're talking about liberty and getting into liberalism. That's episodes number four and five. It's almost like we planned it this way, Father, for all the episodes to kind of lead into one another or something. I don't know. It's beautiful, isn't it? <laughs> it's very good. Um, but but um, there's a there's a distinction there. You, man does not have liberty. Man does not have freedom to promote error. Because that is a misuse. Error is a misuse of liberty. Just like lying mm-hmm. is a misuse of our speech. We don't have a right to lie. We don't have a right for error. That's not liberty. That's license. And there's a big difference. Exactly. Liberty is the faculty of, of or the power of choosing good, of choosing, let's say, those means that will bring um, the the free being to the end that it's destined for. Um, and, and so by definition, there can't be a, a liberty or a right to choose uh, what is evil or what will cause a person to deviate from his last end. And that's precisely what a false religion is. As such, it is an evil which which turns men away from God and from from that worship which he is commanded us to give him it's fascinating and um, we can just note if, if, if you allow me quickly to just sure. add one more thing uh, we like to occasionally bring up the author of the document just because it does shed further light on on let's say the, the problem problematic nature of the document if it's written by an author who's not trustworthy and in this case the let's say the mastermind of this document is uh, father john courtney murray who was an american jesuit whose teaching had already been censured by the holy office um, so as in 
let's say many other cases in this council, you have theologians who are already censured or mistrusted or branded as as suspicious by the Holy Office prior to the council. And then when the council is convened um, through the the political maneuvering of the Rhine group, uh, these theologians are brought into prominence and become, let's say, the, the drafters or inspirers of the council's chief documents. Um, John Courtney Murray, I think we actually talked about him in episode eight on, uh, on Americanism, same thing. So we have, we have these actors who are again, condemned just, you know, to what, 10, 12, 15 years beforehand. And now they are helping to, to shape the way that the council is moving forward and, and basically redefining the Catholic church. That's right. It's crazy. It um, sure is. <laughs> All right. The fourth document that we're focusing on today, Father, uh, Gaudium et mm-hmm. Spes. Um, mm-hmm. This is this is what? So it's called a pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world. Of course, that, that doesn't really explain to us what is the, the, the basic thesis of the document. Well, for that, it's, it's actually helpful to have the commentary of uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, later Pope Benedict XVI. It, when he was still a cardinal, he was interviewed uh, on various occasions regarding this document. And so uh, just to give an overview of it, I'll, I'll quote his own analysis. And it's quite interesting. So Cardinal Ratzinger, this is, I believe, in his book, Principles of Catholic Theology, published in 1987, he says, If it is desirable to offer a diagnosis of the text Gaudium et Space as a whole, we might say that, in conjunction with the text on religious liberty and world religions, it is a revision of the syllabus of Pius IX, a kind of counter-syllabus. Let us be content to say that the text serves as a counter-syllabus and as such represents on the part of the Church an attempt at an official reconciliation with the new era inaugurated in 1789. In other words, uh, what the, the Church is doing here is assessing the ways in which the world has changed in modern times, especially uh, since the French Revolution. That's that's the reference given in the year 1789. That's referring to the French Revolution. So basically, the, the principles of the French Revolution, liberty, equality, fraternity, with all of the kind of Freemasonic ideals that are that are involved in that, um, the Church is looking at this, this new worldview of the modern world and is to some extent approving of it or reconciling herself with it. Wow. Wow. And so can, he's, ex- he's explicitly saying that, that, that we're, we're trying to, it's a counter syllabus according mm-hmm. to the new realities after 1789. Absolutely. And, and let's say this is especially a kind of approval of, uh, humanism or the, the excessive focus that the world has on man and man's dignity. Um, so we find the praises of man at, at various points in this document. For example, man is the only creature on earth which God willed for itself. Or again, according to the almost unanimous opinion of believers and unbelievers alike, all things on earth should be related to man as their center and crown. So there's a major emphasis upon man, man's dignity, and also upon the temporal values of this world. Uh, For example, in section 57 of the document, Christians are exhorted to work with all men in the building of a more human world. Uh, so there's nothing necessarily of the supernatural involved here. Um, it's it's really a an excessive focus upon uh, man and the, the natural goods that man wishes to procure for himself in this life. 
So this is, I'm looking at some of the notes that, that you've passed along to me already, Father, and, and I'm looking mm-hmm. at some of these, some of these texts um, as we're talking. It's, it's focusing on you know, educational and cultural benefits and legitimate right. social advancement and, and things like that, which great, good. I mean, we, we all agree educational and cultural benefits are good. Social advancement, great. But where's the emphasis on the eternal? Exactly. And this is going to be something that characterizes the church after Vatican II is really um, a failure to focus upon uh, the things of eternity and and to preach the truth that man is is created um, not for this world, but for the next to, to know, love and serve God in this life in order to be happy with him forever in, in eternity. Um, and now there's there's very much a this worldliness, which characterizes the church after the Second Vatican Council and which we can find rooted to a greater or lesser extent in, in documents such as this one, Gaudium et Space. And we find it also in, let's say, other other developments of the same fundamental idea, for example, liberation theology, and the idea that the Gospels are really just about uh, liberating man um, from oppression and making man, uh, let's say, free, prosperous, and happy in this life. All of this is is more or less uh, directly uh, correlated to, to the undue emphasis upon human dignity and human progress, which we find in this council document. So these, these documents uh, are passed, um, and I'm looking at some of the dates here, the Dignitatis Humanae are, are, are passed December 7th, Gaudium mm-hmm. et the same day, December 7th, and then the council ends December 8th. So these were done right towards the very end. W- was there pushback? I know we talked a little bit on the last episode, there's the conservative quote-unquote wing of the council uh, and they weren't really given time. They had to have a five-day window where they had to, you know, let people know whether or not they were going to speak or not. Did, did the conservative fathers, like Archbishop Lefebvre and, and 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 others, were they trying to stop the publication of some of these documents, or were they just not able to? Well, absolutely. They were fighting to stop the publication or at least minimize the damage. Uh, so, for example, with Dei Verbum, we already mentioned that there was another far worse, more liberal schema, which was rejected at the last moment, um, primarily, of course, through the, the efforts of the Cetus Internationalis Patrum, the group that Archbishop Lefebvre had had uh, organized and which was the conservative uh, core of the council. Uh, let's say all the council fathers who were who were strongly conservative were were working together in this Chetus. And so likewise with these other documents, if if the Chetus was not able to uh, block the document altogether, at least uh, they were able in many cases to introduce certain statements uh, reaffirming the church's traditional teaching. Um, But as a result, you often have a kind of strange internal conflict within the document itself, where the church's traditional teaching is reaffirmed, but then it's it's subsequently denied. Um, and, and so you have these kind of internal contradictions. Archbishop Lefebvre, in fact, commenting on this, he says that uh, the clauses which the Chetus succeeded in inserting into the council documents stand out from the overall tone of the text like foreign bodies. Uh, that's the term that he used. So, so they're there, and we can find them at various points in the documents, very traditional statements, which the Chetus is, is responsible for. But unfortunately, this was just a, really a question of limiting the damage, but damage there inevitably would be. Oh, that's, that's fascinating and, and troublesome that, again, it, it seems like this was a runaway freight train that was just almost inevitable and, and, and un, unable to be stopped. 
so Father, we've been talking here for the last three episodes on the council itself, and, and obviously there's a lot more here that we just don't have time to get into in great detail. Do you have recommendations if someone wants to learn more about uh, in detail some of these things that happened? Do you have recommendations on something that people could read or books that go through the history of the council? Absolutely. Well, regarding the history of the council, there are two very important ones. One is uh, by Father Ralph uh, Vilchen, or I I may not be pronouncing his last name correctly. It's W-I-L-T-G-E-N. And he was a priest who personally himself attended the Second Vatican Council and and wrote a history shortly thereafter. I I believe that he was personally present at the council, or or at the very least, he he did a lot of research and and met with people who were. Um, But anyways, his history is, is extremely enlightening it's it, it reveals all of the the kind of political maneuvering that goes on at the council it doesn't whitewash the 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 uh, history of it at all it just reveals everything in a very factual manner this priest himself father Vilchen, was um a, a liberal in fact and and was in support of what the council did nevertheless um he he's very objective in his treatment and so it's a reference that that is helpful even for us traditionalists on the other hand, there, there's another work which I'd recommend even more, which was published in, I think, 2013 by Professor Roberto de Mattei called uh, The Second Vatican Council, An Unwritten Story. And that's a really excellent treatise because um, the man is, is an amazing historian and he's also uh, of a traditional mindset. So he has uh, the right perspective with which to, to address the subject matter. And he does an excellent job of, of showing all of the the buildup, what happens, and its implications. It's it's if you had to choose between the two books, I'd definitely recommend this this other one. Although they're both good, Professor De Matei's book is is amazing. Okay, well we have we'll have notes uh, for those in the description here on YouTube and on the podcast notes if you're listening on the podcast, and definitely worth uh, diving into more because again we've spent probably a total of what an hour and a half, hour and forty five minutes over these three episodes talking about this, and there's just. We could probably spend another eight or ten hours easily, Father. I think, uh, absolutely, but we can't. So, um, well, Father, this is this has been fascinating. I really want to dive into what happens next, but that will be the next episode, and we'll we'll, we'll get into that. But I think we'll give you a little bit of a break for now, and and hopefully be able to have you on for a future episode or two. Uh, this has been this has been wonderful to uh, get into this history and the issues that happened in the Second Vatican Council, Father. Thank you so much. Sure, it's my pleasure. I really do appreciate it. It's been uh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for listening to and watching episode 21 of our Crisis in the Church series here on the SSPX podcast. In episode 22, we'll start looking at the post-conciliar, or after Vatican II, period of the Church. The reforms didn't end when the Council did, and in some cases, the reforms accelerated drastically. We'll see more next time. If you have a question on the topic of the crisis, please feel free to ask it at sspxpodcast.com slash crisis. Please share this episode with someone who you think might enjoy it. And if they don't know what a podcast is, please show them so that they can take advantage of all our episodes. And if you have the ability to set up a monthly recurring donation of 5 or 10 or $20 on sspxpodcast.com, it would help us immensely to complete this Crisis in the Church project. Until next week, thank you for listening, and God bless you.